Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is your UFC 220, as well as Bellator 192 post-fight show. So I'm going to try and do things a little bit differently than I normally do. Let's go ahead and get things started. Okay, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. A couple things to ask. Please like the channel, or I should say like the video and subscribe below. I really appreciate that when you do. I am uh, trying to use some new technology. I'm trying to use some new graphics, so I uh, appreciate everyone uh, dealing with some of these growing pains. If you don't want spoilers, now is your chance to get out of this. Now is your chance to, to, to look away and say, I'm going to come back to this a later time because we're going to get into heavy, heavy spoilers in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay, I'm assuming if you're still around, this is actually what you want. Um, all right. Here's how this is going to go. We're going to break down UFC 220 first, and then at the end of that, we're going to break down Bellator 192. If you have a question for me, go ahead and shoot me that at L Thomas News on Twitter. If you look in the description box below, a link uh, to that Twitter account should be there. I'll check that out towards the end. Okay? All right. So with that out of the way, let me go ahead and close this. I've got like four computers running at once here. So let me go ahead and close this one here, and then we're going to get to Bellator, excuse me, we're going to get to uh, UFC 220. All right, let's do this. Uh, if you're just joining me, if you are watching the event live, here is the results uh, as follows. Uh, okay, Stipe Miocic has defeated Francis Ngannou, or Ngannou, excuse me, 50-44 across the board on all three judges' scorecards. He retains his UFC heavyweight title. What can we say about that? Probably a few things. Let's start with the most obvious. Steve Miocic with this win uh, has defended his title now three times. He becomes the first UFC heavyweight champion to do that, which makes him, whatever else you think about him in the greater context of elite heavyweights, at a bare minimum, it makes him the most decorated UFC heavyweight of all time. Okay, that's number one. Number two, um... Let's talk about Stipe first. So, he was the underdog, technically, heading into this contest. Um, there's a bunch of other fights I got wrong, but I basically picked him in this one, if you go back and listen to my radio show on SiriusXM. And my argument was pretty simple. It was that, generally speaking, skills win fights. If you just sort of accept that as a basic premise, it's not always true, um, especially in MMA where you know guys have these like small gloves, and you get a guy like Nganu who's got big power, Anything can really happen, but the vast majority of the time, skills win fights. And in, in ways, if you can deliver it appropriately, power can be a skill. It certainly is a formidable weapon. But it, my notion on Twitter about this was, in the big spaces, Nganu was really quite competitive. So like at distance, he was quite competitive. From a shot from the outside, it was sort of a common training scenario that you can really drill over and over and over and over and over again. He was actually fairly competitive at that, especially given the fact that he hasn't even been competing as a professional for five years. He won't be in MMA for five years as a professional until November of this year. So he's only been in this for four years and some change, right? That's, that's where we're at with this guy. And so I thought in those big spaces, he had a lot to offer. It's the finer details that really give him a lot of problems, right? So 
on the ground, there was a moment where Miocic was inside control and he leaned up and you actually saw off of his back, you saw Ngani like reach up with his hands. Man, if you're on your back and you're reaching out with your hands, that's a really bad sign, right? Like you got to be sitting up. You got to be driving under hooks. You got to be attaching yourself to a guy. You have to be stepping over with your outside leg. You got to be doing a lot of things other than what he was doing. You saw as he would get to the cage, he could maybe stop the takedown, but then he would cover for this because he just didn't know exactly how to get to his feet, or maybe he thought he could just ride the round out, or, you know, it's just hard to say exactly. Uh, but those fine details, and then Miocic was happy to, like, leg ride, or three-quarter stack, or just just hang on him, right? Hang on a neck, hang on a hip, and just lean into him and pull him and drain him. Um, those that, that kind of veteran experience, that kind of, like, wrestling specificity, and it's more than just wrestling specificity. It was like, you know, top control specificity. It was some of those pull counters he was able to get. It was that kind of veteran experience. It was a guy who's been around the block. It was a guy who has done all the right things and has been 35 years old at this point. We know heavyweights don't age quite the same way as other guys do, as other uh, divisions do. He was able to bring all those things to life. And and as a consequence, Nganu was, or Nganu, excuse me, was just simply overwhelmed in the end, right? So there was this big debate I was having with folks on Twitter about this. Some folks were saying, oh, my God, the hype train is totally derailed. Well, look, I mean, the hype train is absolutely going to go through a correction here. But I, I, I'm not really sure what the problem is with the hype train. Um, number one, the hype train makes the fight more exciting, right? Because there are these big claims or at least these big beliefs about what somebody can do. Or even if not a belief, certainly a hope, right? Like what you want is something to be and feel competitive. And, and truth be told... Nganu took tremendous shots, and he hit Stipe a lot, man. He was hurting him. Even, was it late in that fourth round? He landed at one, or maybe it was the third round, landed at a monster shot. Like, even late, he was still really competitive. And, and the point being is, this guy is that good after that amount of training, and he has very little miles on him. I mean, this is just, this is a shocking level of of skill. So, sure, absolutely, the, this uh, belief about how good Nganu is is going to be um, corrected to an extent, and it needs to be. He's not as good as we thought, and there are some details about this that his physicality simply can't overcome. That really is what cost him here, where he could physically muscle through things against other guys, right? He had just enough technique where he could, you know, get to certain positions and then just force everything through the rest of the way with his technique, excuse me, with his uh, athleticism. Stipe shut all that down. Stipe was ahead of him technically, could in some cases match him athletically, but more or less forced him to just rely on whatever athletic prowess he had, and that can get drained really, really fast. Um, so, so, uh, so sure. I mean, the the look, Miocic is a totally deserving winner. That fifty forty four is in some ways um, sort of poetic, right? Because here was this guy who was an underdog, and he just shows you in the end, skills win fights. Skills win fights. That's what. That's really what you got out of this guy. Um, an ability to, uh, in, in all these various phases and dimensions of the game, all the little things that even if you're very skilled, they just take time as a skill set, not merely to accumulate, but to accumulate and then normalize and make part of your muscle memory. It's just too much for Francis. That's why he can do the big movements, right? He can fire an underhook and then plant a hand and then just stand. Because... There's some technique to that, but there's not. It, 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 he can just he can just sort of grease the skids with his athleticism, right? 
Uh, Miocic doesn't need to do that. I mean, he's got some athleticism if he has to really pull into the back pocket. But more than that, he's got just all of these other bases covered. And that really ended up being a bit of the difference. There was a moment there after that fourth round where I thought to myself, wow, his corner might need to consider throwing the towel in here. And, and in the end, Miocic didn't really pour it on too hard in the fifth. Plus, Nganu stopped some takedowns in that fifth round. Hence my point. I think he even went for a guillotine briefly. That guillotine he likes between the chest, almost like that go-go joke. Um, but, you know, it wasn't to be. Like, he, he was just totally overwhelmed, um, so it didn't work. But um, you get the idea. You get the idea about that. So uh, I, I just want to be clear about this. Like, to me, what this fight showed was what both men are really good at. Um, it's sometimes like, for example, we're going to talk about in a minute the Michael Chandler Goichi Yamauchi fight. It didn't really show what either guy was really great at, to be honest. This one was the opposite. This one actually showed you what they were good at. Uh, it showed you the difference between them. And look, if you want to be a hater, if you want to be one of these guys who was like, oh my God, everyone promoted Nganu and he didn't live up to expectations. No, you're right. He didn't. He didn't live up to expectations. How could he in some ways, I suppose. And then the other part is, I, I don't know what y'all saw. I saw that this this is a guy, I don't know if he's going to be champion, depending what kind of guy Cain Velasquez ultimately comes back to be. Because if, like for example, a prime Cain would be a real bad matchup for him. Because he could probably take a shot, get in on his hips, fire an underhook, and then just wear on the guy. Like that, that kind of guy would be a big problem for him, but I don't know if that Cain Velasquez really exists anymore. And more to the point, if Nganu can amass these kinds of skills this quickly, I am very hesitant to suggest that in the future he couldn't be somebody really special. Tonight, Stipe is the man, and that there's just no debate about that. 50-44 on all three judges' scorecards, bro, you got, you got handled in the end. But... Um, I just want to make sure that I get this point across. As much praise as Stipe deserves, and we're going to circle back to that in just a moment, because this is really his night. Um, I don't think it's fair to dismiss Francis Ngannou today. I really, really don't. Especially if you're going to make the argument that Stipe Miocic is the all-time greatest heavyweight. Like, so which is it? Ngannou is a terrible, overrated lout who had no business in here who just happened to take the champ five rounds. By the way, Mark Hunt took the champion. Or how, how far did Mark Hunt take uh, Steve Bimmy? I just can't remember anymore. I remember because Mario Yamasaki let it go so long, I, I wanted to just be like, oh my God, somebody please help this poor bastard. Um, that's weird. They don't have his record on Wikipedia anymore. I, I, I don't remember, but Mark Hunt took way more of an ass whipping. But this is the point. If like if Miocic is the greatest heavyweight of all time, and that's a debate we can have, then Nganu to me deserves to be credited as a guy who less than five years in took him the distance. Wow, that's pretty that ain't so bad. Now, enough of Nganu for a minute and all the praise that I think he deserves and all the criticism that I think he's deserving as well. Let's talk about Sibe Miocic for just a moment. This is an incredible run that this guy has been on. I do want to pull up his record here, even if uh, Wikipedia can't show it to me, which is a little weird. Um Oh, here we go. Oh, I guess they're editing it now? Oh, that's the problem. All right, let me pull up his record on, uh, like, Tapology or something. Um, 
Let's talk about his record, because here's a guy, by the way, who lost a couple of times in the UFC and had to sort of overcome, in the end, um, some of the stumbles he had early. But here is his record, yes? All right, so he just beat Francis Ngannou. Before that, he beat Junior Dos Santos, who he had previously lost to, by the way. Talking about a guy who had redemption, who continued to develop, continued to show promise. Before that, of course, he beat Alistair Overeem, then he beat Fabricio Verdun to win. So, uh, since his last loss, which was to Junior Dos Santos back in 2014, which, by the way, went the full five rounds and was an incredible contest, he has defeated, and he badly defeated, Mark Hunt. He stopped him in the fifth round. Then he beat Andre Arlovsky, stopped him in the first round in 54 seconds. Then he beat Fabricio Verdum, stopped him at two and a half minutes, more or less, in the first round. Then Alistair Overeem, then Junior Dos Santos, so he got his revenge, and now Francis Ngannou. That is an incredible, incredible win streak. You know, we talk about the greatest heavyweights of all time. Certainly, he is unequivocally the best UFC heavyweight of all time. And I guess you could say, well, what does that leave Fatal? Fatal for a time in 20, uh, 2004 was just ahead of the game in every, really, capacity. Um, his, his speed and his athleticism and his, you know, he had looping hooks and sort of like Russian style of boxing. But he was really quite incredible. And even then, he, you could tell he had great fight IQ in, in that match with Krokop. I mean, I know this might seem to you, if you're new to MMA, like esoteric nonsense, but you really have to understand back in 2004 and Pride, was this huge, you know, event and the way which he was able to pressure into Crow Cop and really shut down the kick. And remember, of course, Fedor's brother had already lost uh, to Crow Cop until he got that measure of revenge. That was incredible. But I really have to say, number one, Miocic's game is more modern than that. And eventually there'll be somebody who's more modern than him, but his game is more modern than that. And we had this moment where we were like, well, what about Fabrice Verdun? Because he beats Kane, he beats Fedor, and he beat Mark Hunt. But then it was just a Miocic, what does that mean? But like, if Verdum was sort of your lead candidate before, and you just saw what Stipe did to him, and now you're looking at this sort of guy who is this newer version, who is less refined, but in some ways, you know, these older guys like Arlovsky and Verdum, they kind of lack that athletic prowess that Nganu had in spades, right? He's got it times 10, and Miocic was still able to handle that. Um, that, that to me is really the mark of somebody who's incredible. He beat a guy, now granted it was standing, but he beat a guy in Verdun who was an all-time great jiu-jitsu guy. And, and by the way, quite gifted in the clinch as well. Arlovsky, former heavyweight champion, by the way, he can still crack. Then he beats Alistair Overeem, who gave, gave it to him, by the way, and then he turned it back around on him. And Overeem had some chin issues, but Nganu, or Nganu did not. And you saw me, which is how he handled that. And of course, Overeem has that decorated kickboxing background. Junior Dos Santos, probably not the same guy he fought the first time around, but in no small part because of what that fight did to him too, in addition to the Kane Wars. So he gets this revenge, he shows this demonstrated growth, he he he, he just doesn't really buckle under pressure. And then he goes and he beats Francis Ngannou. This is my thing about Stephen Miocic. He really has incredible calm and poise. He has a commitment to the offense that he launches. He has surprising, not surprising, he has... Surprising only insofar as he's good at all these things offensively and then defensively as well. He has all the sort of his P's and Q's covered. There were, yes, there were moments in that first round where Nganu was tagging him pretty repeatedly, but it never really shook him. It never really changed him. It never really got him to do things that were super panicky. Maybe up the urgency a little bit, but um, I just mean to say under great pressure, this is a guy that shows incredible character. Really, 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 really strong character traits, right? Really strong. Um, and 
this is an all-time great resume as far as heavyweights go. 18-2 and two record. Uh, no one's been able to get past that hurdle. You can see why no one can get past that hurdle, man. You know, even if he beat Nganu in a way that uh, surprised some, or uh, I don't know what your opinion is as you watch this right now. Look at what it took, man. He had to beat Verdum, then he had to beat Overeem, then he had to beat JDS, and then he had to go and do it against... I mean, I'm just sort of pointing out, like, it just appears that at heavyweight, there are these natural hurdles that tripped everybody up. And this was the first guy who didn't get tripped up. But you can see, even if he didn't get tripped up, getting across this, I mean, he's going to wake up tomorrow feeling it. Trust me. Now, is going to be feeling it even worse. But he, we're not talking about him because this is a conversation about all-time great heavyweight action and all-time great heavyweights. Uh, oh, boy, Stipe is going to be feeling it tomorrow. Trust me. And um, you can just see that it was almost like this natural obstacle that all these guys just couldn't get past. And it just took a guy who has grit, um, composure under fire, uh, offensive skills, uh, defensive, a strong sense of defensive responsibility, and then this great sort of mixed skill set where he can just do a lot of the things that he needs to do. In many ways, he sort of reminds me of Demetrius Johnson. Not to say that he goes out there and, like, you know, he's not throwing Nganu in the air, catching him and then armbarring him. I don't mean that. But if he needs to take the fight to a certain dimension, or at least needs to introduce a certain dimension, just to get enough of an advantage over a person that he's competing against, he can do that. Maybe he doesn't need to. Maybe he just wants to slug it out with you. But if he needs to introduce some wrestling or some top control or some rides or some clinching or whatever... He can bring all of those things to bear uh, in very, very effective ways. And, and I think that's what you saw here tonight. So Stephen Miocic, easily, far and away, the best UFC heavyweight um, ever to this point. And an extraordinarily strong case that that's your best heavyweight of all time. Uh, a sensational performance, a hard-earned performance, even if he wound up outclassing his opponent in the end. Um, he struggled early as anybody probably would in that case. And, as I mentioned earlier, it just showed a, an absurd degree of um, bearing. That's really what sort of stands out to me about Steve Miocic. It's just incredible bearing, right? Um, doesn't really matter what the circumstances are. What is the plan? What is available? What is not available? Let's follow a course of action in accordance with those facts. Um, the fact that he is so down-to-earth and sort of simple about it. He, Steve Miocic is never going to be one of these guys who has um, paralysis by analysis. Right? Everything is just sort of very comfortable for him insofar as, you know, fighting a guy like Francis can be. So I take my hat off to him. I hope you do as well. It's an incredible achievement. It's been a long time coming. We all thought Kane was going to be the guy, and he wasn't. Now, I'm not saying he won't be special going forward. We'll see what happens with his comeback. And I think a lot of us thought, well... Verdum's had his up and downs, but the win over Kane and the win over Fedor, I guess that kind of makes him de facto. Now you've got a guy going in there and making this, this conversation a lot easier. Okay? Making it a lot easier. If you want to have a conversation about guys in different eras, meaning different things to the sport, you can have that. But I just think for right now, um, this achievement is not some kind of arithmetic one. Oh, he had the three wins. These guys only had the, or the three title defenses. These guys only had two. It means more than that. It's it's if so many of these really incredible fighters couldn't do that, and then you finally get a guy to do that, but he has to really work for it. 
And it only happened when he was 35 years old. After, by the way, he had a couple of losses in the organization and, and came from a wrestling background and a well-rounded athletic background and can do the boxing. You know, you just sort of get a sense of like, what would it take to break that record? It would take all these different things. Miocic is the first one who was able to balance them all and bring them to bear. Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. All right, so that takes us now to our co-main event. Good Lord, boy. What do you want to say about Daniel Cormier? My goodness, man. Um, so the thing about Volkan Uzdemir, which I'll admit right up front, right up front I will admit this. Um, I have been spectacularly wrong about Volkan Uzdemir. Like in a way that is like embarrassing and shocking. And um, I, I, I just, after the OSP fight, I was like, I don't really know what to make of this guy. And then he goes out there and blows the doors off the circuit. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I, it happened so fast. What can you really say about it? But then you're like, all right, well, fine. It's a, it's a legit win. You can't take it away from the guy. Then he goes and does that to Jimmy Manoa. And I was like, okay. Well, I clearly don't understand this person at all because I'm so wrong about him. And he's going out there and he's blowing the doors off these guys. And Manoa was a good fighter and Serkinov's a good fighter. Very good fighters. And then you saw early in this fight, he really is good early. He doesn't get intimidated early at all. In fact, it's later in the fight when the doubt begins to creep in. But early when he's just sort of feeling it, when he's warm, when he's loose, when he's ready to go. Um, he was really putting it on Cormier. I don't know how much he was landing exactly. We're going to have to go back and look. But he had Cormier at a bare minimum moving on the defensive. And I noted on Twitter, you heard Dominic Cruz say it too. He was leaning, leaning to the same side that um, that uh, Jones cracked him on. You know, it was something that he didn't really work out of. Some habits die, die a little hard, you know. And this was one of them. But in the end, it didn't really matter. He was able to weather that storm and then ultimately overcome him. By the way, I want to say winning. How did he win? Now, TKO punches at two minutes of the second round. Very, very good stuff. Daniel Cormier is an all-time great competitor. You know, he often talks about the fact that he loves to compete. Like, what does that mean? There are people who just, they just want to test themselves all the time. This is a source of pride for them, win or lose. It's a source of fact-finding about them. It's a process of, of personal character refinement that they always want to go through. And um, to be honest, like in certain realms, I like to compete. I think all of us, in certain ways, we might want to compete with others. But some people are like intensely competitive. And he's just one of these guys. It's somebody who's good at... Somebody who's really eager as a competitor is going to be really good at competing. And by that, I mean competing is not just the notion of, oh, my skills, your skills, let's see how they match. It's always, let's see how they match on that day, given those circumstances, through this process. It's always, people just feel like if generally X is better than Y, then it doesn't really matter. X will just sort of manifestly show that to be true. And and I think, you know, if, if there's something to be said for that, but... At the same time, if, if the process of competing is not properly treated, then it will backfire badly on someone, even if they are perceived to be manifestly better than whatever the uh, competition to them is. Here's my point. He's just good at competing. He knows how to get himself up. He knows how to uh, emotionally center himself. He knows what he needs to be successful. What are the conditions that have to be established? What are the ones that have to be rejected? Uh, how do I deal with pressure in a certain situation? How do I deal with a retreating opponent? Like all the different circumstances, he just has a map for, and all he has to really do is follow it. And that's exactly what you saw here. Even with that that fluidity 
and that pressure and some of the good shots that um, Volkan Uzdemir was landing, it, it didn't it didn't it didn't phase him. It didn't really take him out of it to the point where my God, DC has this one trick that he does so well. He goes for the single, he runs the pipe, he runs the pipe. You twirl to you know to to get your post leg to run. Then he lifts the post leg, right? So you drive it into the ground, right? Because you want to create an opposite effect. If someone's taking your leg and they're pulling you this way, what are you going to do? You're going to take your other leg and your hips, and you're going to drive down and plant your other hand, excuse me, the other, the other leg, and then he has that trip. He hit that trip on Anthony Johnson a million times, and he hit that trip on Volkan Uzdemir in this fight. He's got so many tricks, but this is my point. Those tricks don't mean anything if you don't have the mental wherewithal and the composure to handle a scenario like that. And he's just got it down like it's nobody's business. He is one of the great all-time competitors in mixed martial arts history, irrespective of era, irrespective of weight class, irrespective of just about anything. He is a guy who, when it goes, it is time to show your cards, he will show them no problem, and, 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 and there will be no mystery about the process. He is just so at ease in the cauldron. He is so at ease in the fire. It means nothing to him. In fact, no one does not mean anything to him. I'll never forget, man. Some people, when the bright lights come on stage, I mean, there are guys who have to write out their best man speech. You know, like, oh my God, what am I going to say? His wife's going to be there in the in-laws. And how do I really reflect our friendship? And all this bullshit, right? This is a guy where when the lights come on, he's just cheesing. Ah, so happy. So happy because he can't even really, he can't even be himself until that scenario is cre created for him. That's who Daniel Cormier is. That's the kind of competitor he is. He is built, absolutely fundamentally core built for expressing himself through that. Not really succeeding through that, but self-expression through that. In any case, what do you want to say about the fight itself? Um, Uzdemir, again, I think early on he has a certain amount of fluidity and comfortability. I thought he had the right game plan. Get right in Cormier's face. Force him to make mistakes. See if he can really answer for them. The problem was once that was first year or even second year. The problem was once they got to third or fourth year, there was no, there was no refuge for him. You'll recall one of the arguments that Paulie Malignaggi made about Conor McGregor. Now, whether or not you think it's fair about those two individuals, put that aside for just a moment. His argument was, I'll substitute two names, X and Y. X's claim about Y was that Y has a certain game. And that certain game is pretty good. But once you get used to it and you get past it and you ask Y to show the next set of adjustments that they can make, then there's nothing else there. You'll recall Lomachenko with Rigondeau. He had a certain amount of fight early. Once Lomachenko took that away from him, there was he, he was like, no mas, right? It's something similar to that. Early on, Uzdemir had a good game plan, getting right in his face, sticking the jab out there. Um, uh, he had very solid takedown defense, getting his hips down and back. Not exactly down blocking, but really sort of keeping Cormier off of him. Cormier doesn't do a lot of level changing exactly. He sort of does like more like a bit of a reach. But you get the idea, very, very good takedown defense, he was keeping his back off the fence. But once Cormier kind of settled in and put the pressure on him, he was able to pot shot him a little bit. He was firing the one-two. Uh, he was even able to dip and then sort of catch him with the left hook a little bit. Once those elements begin to be introduced, then Uzdemir had no answer for him. And then he was able to get the takedown, then he moved from the side control, and then he had the crucifix. And then that was all she wrote. It was, it was a show that early on, Uzdemir is a terror. He's very, very good in that space because he's very comfortable there. 
He just likes to let it fly. He's got good hand speed. He doesn't really worry about the pace or the speed of the game in those contexts. But it also showed that once you get past that, there's a lot left to be desired insofar as um, the championship level is concerned. And so Daniel Cormier afterwards saying, you know, I just I feel like I proved that I did what it took to be considered a champion. I think that's absolutely true. I don't know what's going to happen with John Jones. And this is the other part. Like this is a guy who you, this was a guy who in July, right, late July almost. I think early August. It was not quite August. But it was like what, July 29th or something. Right around there for UFC 214, he got head kick KO. He got viciously stopped for the first time in his career. He cries on national television. And there was a big question being like, well, the, we know he's a good competitor. The guy's been competing since he could walk, but this feels like a new level of defeat. How is he going to answer for this? Well, you got your answer. It looked like he didn't miss a beat. Yes, he had to weather an early storm from a game opponent, and that should be noted, but... It didn't look to me at all like he was having any kind of problem. It looked like he actually was coming off of a win and nearly landing a choke at the end of the first round and then the second round picking right back up where he left off like it was nothing. Uh, again, one of the all-time great competitors in the history of mixed martial arts. Truly, we are lucky. This is this guy's second career as an athlete. You know, he, already, he already had a career as an athlete. This is the second act of it. He's out here doing stuff like that. It's just shocking. It's shocking that somebody is that composed and that they, they crave that kind of environment for uh, a demonstration of their own abilities in that kind of way. It's, it's, uh, it's, it takes your breath away. Truly, it takes your breath away. Uh, let's see here. Let's move down. There's some of these fights I was, bit, I was juggling a bit, so you're going to have to forgive me just a little bit. Um, how about this? Uh, Calvin, is it Cater, Cotter, defeating Shane Burgos at 32 seconds of the third round. I don't want to say a whole lot about this because I was watching the Rory versus uh, Rory McDonald versus Douglas Lima fight, which we'll talk about in a moment. It just looked to me like what happened was Calvin uh, Cotter, however you want to pronounce that, was uh, a little bit quicker to the punch. He was just a little bit more active with the jab. Burgos likes to get into a rhythm. He likes to counter a lot, but he'll, he'll lead a little bit if he's in a rhythm setting. And Cotter was just on his feet, on his feet, side to side, in and out, changing stances. Uh, and then, so of course, he caught up with two uppercuts that ultimately closed the show. But if you just look at those individual exchanges, Burgos has this style where he's very, very good about letting, again, once he gets into a rhythm, he just finds open spots, right? He's just touching everywhere. And once you, you keep touching, eventually a door opens, and then you can just really fire through it. Cotter was really this guy who was moving to a point where that was hard to get any of that going. Plus, he was just constantly firing, flicking the jab in his face so that he could never really get settled. Uh, and as a consequence, I think he was able to, uh, in the end, disrupt whatever Burgos wanted to do. And then on top of that, really add for himself, um, you know, a nice win. I'll have more about that, I think, a little bit later on my Monday Morning Analyst. I had to really, you know, pay attention to another fight at that time. John Vellante defeating Francis Barbosa, uh, two 30-27s and a 28-29 for Francis Moore. I don't know how you get that. John Vellante has this thing. It's it's weird, man. Like, he has a good chin because he'll jab constantly and he doesn't retract. And so you could see Bohosa forever, like, he wasn't doing great. He was getting back to the whole time. But you could see Vellante extending, and then he would extend. And every time, every time, Bohosa was coming over the top and cracking him. Boom. Every time. It was, it was weird. Because um, he just never... This has been a continuous problem for him. Like I, I think that's what cost him against Tom Lawler. It's what cost him against a lot of guys. Um, Saperbek Safarov, 
right? All these guys. Um, and he never seems to correct it. Now, I don't think he took enough of a, uh, as much of a beating in this contest as he has in previous ones, but anyway, I don't know. Rob Font defeating Thomas Almeida. Wow, 224 of the second round. Full, a few things to say about this one. Thomas Almeida is taking way too much damage, man. Way too much damage. Like a shocking level of abuse. Let's look at his record uh, now with this fight. And we'll, we'll, I mean, just this is bad. He's lost three of his last four. So he came to the UFC, he beat Tim Gorman, then he beat Eves Jabouin, then he beat Brad Pickett, then he beat Anthony Burchak. By the way, none of those guys are in the UFC anymore. Then he lost to Cody Garbrandt. Okay, no big deal. Then he beats Albert Morales. Cool. And then he loses to Jimmy Rivera. Okay. You know, those are tough guys. And then he loses to Rob Font. Now, Rob Font is very, very underrated and a very, very good fighter. And um, here's what it looks like to me. We know Almeida is a slow starter. I think that cost him a little bit early, but then you saw towards the middle of the round, it was then Almeida who was doing the center of the octagon, stalking and then pushing Rob Font around. The other problem is, I think the way in which Almeida reacts to, to uh, offense is a little too predictable. He kept slipping to the same side, or he, or he wouldn't even slip at all certain times. Like, if you can fake and get him to slip, he just comes back and you fire again. He doesn't have, he doesn't keep slipping. Right, he'll just slip once and then go back. He'll slip another time and then just go back. And there'll be another exchange, then he'll back out, then we'll come back in again, and he'll slip the first one, and then he just goes back. And so he was doing the same kind of thing here, so that's why they were firing that one too, because once he's locked into it, he'll do the initial evasion, and then once he's done the initial evasion, he doesn't really keep doing it. So bink, bink, and he just met, fought, measured him with the left hand, or I think it was the left hand, and then fired and cracked him with that right. Kaboom, son. Like it was nothing. Um, great win for Rob Font, who, by the way, was having some trouble. He didn't have a great fight against John Lineker, and then he gets subbed out by who? Pedro Munoz, who has like a stupid good guillotine. Fair enough. But this was, I think, the best win of Rob Font's career. This is a guy, I think, out of Dillard Rodgers Gym. I think was on MMA as well. Boston native. Loves golf, by the way. I don't know if you guys know that. Loves golf. A guy who has been, uh, we know he's been a really good striker, and we know he's got some well-rounded abilities. And then you saw him lose to Pedro Munoz, and you saw him lose to, to John Lineker, and you thought, well, he's a very good fighter, but what are his limits exactly? And, and, and there's some questions to be asked about that still, because Almeida's got his own problems. But beating Almeida in the way he did, uh, without a ton of trouble, to be quite honest. Yes, Almeida had his moments too. Um, Almeida had a good left hook, I believe, uh, and Almeida had good combinations where he would finish with his kicks as well, but it wasn't enough in the end, was it, right? Like, Rob Font didn't take too much damage, and in the end was able to close the show up in a pretty effective way. Um, it's easily the best one of his career, strong redemptive performance, and the kind of thing where he can make adjustments and, 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 um, you know, some guys aren't great about listening to their corners. You know, he was really good about listening to his corner in this context. So, uh, and also, further proof that the bantamweight division was, and, and remains to be, you know, maybe not quite as good as lightweight, but pretty goddamn good. Uh, Kyle Bokniak defeating Brandon Davis, 29-28, 29-28, 30-27. Again, is a real simple thing you should always, like, ask yourself. Whose offense was more dynamic? And dynamic, I don't mean like spazzing or just moving for the sake of moving. I mean, yes, you know, the fluidity of movement and movement more generally are big components of what I mean when I say 
dynamism, right? Like you are on your feet, like you are doing things, but like who is doing a greater array of, you know, diverse defensive and offensive actions? Who is acting on the fight more? In this case, you had Bokniak switching stances, lateral movement, in and out, uh, again, getting off first. He was just doing more and doing, and not more of the same thing, doing a wide array of more things. And in the end, Brandon Davis was just sort of like left kind of flat, not flat-footed exactly because that's not fair, and he had a decent take on the fence as well. But uh, the striking was relatively even. Davis likes it when guys come to him and he can sort of like pot shot. But the fact that you had Bokniak switching stances, the fact that you had moving, getting in, getting out, um, you know, uh, angling off of jabs, so like it's not, he's not jabbing and staying there. He's jabbing, 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 and moving around as he jabs. Right, the sort of GSP style. He did that as well. He was just doing more things to keep the other guy uncomfortable, keep the other guy reacting, while he was able to then bring his offense to life. So uh, always ask yourself when a fight happens like that and it's over. And I'm not saying it was you know not close at all, or I'm not making any claim about how close it was. I'm really saying. An easy way to tell who should be the winner, who probably was the winner, was whose offense was more dynamic. And in this case, very clearly, Bakniak's was more dynamic. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan defeating Sabah Omasi, 347 of the first round. There was going to be a lot of people who complained about that referee stand-up, and to be honest, I'd have to see it again. Because it was this weird thing where it was almost like Al-Hassan had, um, it was almost like he had an omoplata with no omoplata. So, like, if you have an omoplata and you sit up, right? So, I've, what's an omoplata? An omoplata is, sorry, what am I saying? What am I saying? Omoplata. Yes. An omoplata is a, it's almost like, what do you want to say? It's almost like a kimura of the legs or something. It's not, it's not exactly true. It's a shoulder lock. But the point being is, if you have it and you do it correctly, once you lock it in, you don't want to be on your back with your legs in the air. You want to sit up. You want to drive them down. And then, if I have it on my, this side... Let's say I have it locked up. I want to grab my arm around their waist, right? It's called a wa uh, tight waist or whatever you want to call it, seatbelt. Some people call it a seatbelt. Boom. And what does that prevent? That prevents them from rolling, right? So if you prevent them from rolling, you can control it. And then you can take your other leg. You can hear me stepping. You can step into it and you can do what um, Ben Saunders did to, what's his name? Chris something, Helmsley or Helmsley, whatever his name was. And you can get... A submission. Now it's hard to do, but that's the point. Is you stop them from rolling, and then you drive the angle on the other side. It looked like Al Hassan had a a no omoplata omoplata because he had the seatbelt and he had nothing else tied up. And you heard Dominic Cruz talking about creating a shelf. What, I, what he means when he says creates a shelf is imagine you have your knee in the air, right? Your foot on the ground, knee in the air. You're kneeling. You're, you're Colin Kaepernick for a moment. When you create a shelf, that means you're in a grappling situation and you're placing their leg on, in a deep uh, in a deep way, maybe from the knee, on top of your leg, and then you're using that to help control their hip and then their movement more generally. Right? That's what he means by creating a shelf. Your leg is a shelf. You're, you're, you're putting their leg on top of yours. And he didn't really do that very effectively, so eventually they just broke him up. Here's my point about why I wasn't really upset with it. It wasn't that there that Al Hassan wasn't in a compromised position. But if you're in a compromised position and the other guy's really not doing a whole lot with it, clock's ticking, bro. We want to get somebody, I want to have referees, and it's a very, I made this point before, it's a very, very delicate balance. There's not a lot of easy calls about it, and I know it's controversial, and it's a debate I'm, I'm perfectly willing to have. 
but uh, I believe that we should empower referees more in mixed martial arts to improve action. What I am not suggesting is that we have quick stand-ups. It's not the same thing. It's something in between there. It's something in between no stand-ups and quick stand-ups. I want some kind of space in the middle where we say, look, even if you have an advantageous position, if you're not really doing anything with it, you can't stall out. we got to keep this moving. And if you can't keep it moving, I don't really have a problem with it. But that seemed to hasten the, uh, the situation for um, for uh, Homasi, who, who uh, ducked into it and brought his hand up, expecting a hook, and then just moved right into the uppercut. And, uh, you know, Razak Al-Hassan has you know, quite the punching power. Dustin Ortiz defeating Alessandre uh, Pantoja. 29-28 across the board. I don't understand his game plans, man. I mean, he gets it done because he's a tough bastard and he's a good fighter. But he just... I didn't understand the need to constantly take Pantoja down. You know, it's one thing if you're Paul Felder and you're taking Oliveira down, and then you take, or you, you you're in his guard anyway, and then you're just, I mean, you're 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 banging on him, right? Like you're hurting this guy. You're making him really question the very refuge that he has in that octagon. It's another thing to get into these scrambles where they're like they're very close, they're very fifty-fifty. You're giving up your back. You might get his back for a little bit, but then he gets your back for a little bit, and in the end, it worked. Like. And so you're saying, well, if it worked, what is the point of criticizing or, or complaining? Maybe maybe there's not a point, but it just seems like to me it's like, I don't know, it felt a little like 2009 Clay Guida-ish or something, where it's like, I'm just going to take you down because that's what I have to do and I, I can't really do anything else. It's like that, I don't know. I, I feel like Dustin Ortiz is a very good scrambler. I think he's got very good wrestling. Um... And he's obviously got tremendous cardio, and he has very good, um, what's the word? Um, again, composure. But just constantly taking Pantoja down, it's like, really, that's the best way for you to win this fight? I don't know. It just it just felt to me like there had to be a better way. Uh, Julio Arce defeating Dan Ige. 30-27 on two scorecards, 29-28 on the other just, you, you, I mean, Dominic Cruz did a really fantastic job of breaking this down. He always had the outside foot. You can go back to the Ronda Rousey-Holly um, Holm fight, right, where Holly Holm constantly had the outside foot, the lead foot from the opposite stance, was able to fire the shot as a consequence. You don't necessarily have to do it that way. If you have a major speed advantage, you can actually go inside. But oftentimes, I'm going to tell you, if you have an opposite stance, you want to be on the outside because if I step to the outside, now it creates a lane for mine to go down. Versus if I'm here, now I'm in your lane. But if I get off the lane, I still have a lane for this hand. So you get your you get your head out of their lane, and then you create a lane for yours. It's sort of two birds, one stone. He was very, very good about that. Another guy who angles off of his jabs. He was getting warm. He was going to the body. He was shutting down the takedown. He really... I, I didn't think there was a case necessarily for Ige's corner to throw the towel, but... Because he wasn't getting... His face was getting turned to hamburger, but it wasn't getting too badly beat up, but if it had gotten any worse, there would have been a case for it, but uh, nice win by the Colombian-American there, for sure. Enrique Barzola defeating Matt Bissette. Matt Bissette makes good reads. He clearly has a, a good understanding of mixed martial arts, but it just felt like he was moving in slow motion, and Barzola does not necessarily make a lot of great decisions, but has good athleticism, strong takedowns. He can pick guys up, obviously, and he can hit hard, but you know some fight IQ issues. And then Islam Makachev defeating Lucent Tebow. Lucent Tebow Looked well-muscled, but not like normal. Obviously, he had the issue with anti-doping authorities. Comes back, 
didn't really look all that great for two years. And then, uh, well, how did the left hook go? He got hit with a left hook and that dropped him. Oh, uh, he was he was biting on the left. Um, Makachev was throwing out his his uh, or he was throwing out his lead hand. Excuse me. Makachev was throwing out his right to get uh, Tebow to bite on it and then throw the kick. Steps into it and it comes over the top with the left. Sits him down real nice. Um, almost a one-shot, one-kill kind of thing, too, from Islam Makachev. And then, post by interview in English. Pretty, pretty good. Um, let's check out you guys, make sure you're doing all right here. Yes. Okay. Very good. Uh, all right. Let's do this. Let's now, don't forget, if you have questions, shoot them to me at L. Thomas News. I'll get to them if this is over. And by the way, also don't forget, please like the video below and subscribe to the channel. It's always a big help when you guys do that. I'll put you guys up a little reminder here. Okay, so let's talk about Bellator for a second, shall we? Let's pull up Bellator 192 here for just a moment. And by the way, when I do that, here's my super classy, I make lots of money, Buffalo Wild Wings glass. You're asking what this might be. This is uh, Beam and Coke. No, excuse me, Beam and Diet. No, Beam and Coke Zero. Mmm. And you're asking, Luke, are you really going to be doing a post-fight show like this after you've been boozing? And the answer is yes, because this is my free time. I don't have to be doing this. I'm building it up for my YouTube channel. I like doing this. I think you guys like it as well. You seem to get positive feedback on it. I have a good time. And um, I don't owe anything to MMA Fighting for this. I don't owe anything to SiriusXM for this. If I want to have a drink, fuck it. I'll have a drink. Mmm. These berries taste like burning. Okay, so Bellator 192. This took place at the Forum in Inglewood, California. How many of you tried to watch both at the same time? I'll have to say, um, or should I rather say I have to say, not I'll have to say, uh, the fights for the most part, I got a little bit coinciding there, but for the most part, they were staggered between the two organizations. So as like Bellator was on, UFC wasn't, or there was a little bit of space between them. So you were more or less able to get it. As I mentioned before, the Shane Burgos fight, I got a little bit, you know, trying to watch the Rory fight, that got me a little bit. More or less, you were able to watch both at the same time. I had lots of people tweet me saying they had like two screens up or two laptops up because they were like thievers and they were uh, thievers, thieves and they were stealing everything or they had two TVs or whatever. But a lot of people I felt like were trying to get... Um, uh, both fights up at the same time. I, here's what I would say about that. At first, I was like, oh my god, this is overkill. I love it so much. And then by the time the main events and the co-main events were around, I was like, this is a little too much because the UFC 220 card was not great. And the Bellator card only is the main card. The prelims are utterly irrelevant. Not utterly irrelevant, but mostly irrelevant. Joey Davis had a nice win, but... Point being is, at first it was fine when you were talking about things that were less consequential. And then when you got to the consequential stuff, it was like, I really just want to focus, but neither here nor there. All right, let's talk about it. Chael Sonnen defeating uh, Quentin Rampage Jackson, 29-28 across the board. What can we say about this one? It kind of reminded me of his fight against Vanderlei, to be honest. I didn't see necessarily a whole lot of difference. In fact, maybe the fight to make for... for uh, for Bellator now is the, you know, the, was it now the third meeting, or the, well, I guess the fourth meeting. How many meetings have Rampage and Vanderly had? A bunch. Um, yeah, I think it would be the fourth one. 
And I know that Rampage already knocked him out in UFC after getting, getting bludgeoned in Pride, but it'd be kind of fun to have them in a Pride rivalry, a UFC rivalry, now a Bellator rivalry. Anyway, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But Quinn Jackson coming in at 253 looked kind of big, and I interviewed Frank Mir before the fight, and I asked him what he made of that. His answer was basically like he doesn't think it was going to be good. I think he got it mostly right, maybe a little bit wrong, but mostly right. Here's what I mean. He thought that that would like really slow him down, and it wouldn't really suit his 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 game. His game is that his Frank's argument was that his strength carries to light heavyweight even when he's cutting weight. So by adding all that weight, you're you're adding some strength, but you're taking away all of the dynamism that comes with being. A light heavyweight fighter. Now, obviously, this is a heavyweight contest, so you have to be at least 206. But the point being is, you know, he could have been 220, let's say, as opposed to 253. And my thought was that probably is right, but I also thought that Rampage would have really good takedown defense. Historically, you know, this is a guy who stuffed Kevin Randleman with double underhooks. And for a couple of times, he was able to do that. I have to give credit to Chill Sonnen. He was really able to chase those takedowns, especially in open space, and get them when he needed to. And then once he had him there, that was really all she wrote. At distance, I thought Rampage had a decent game plan insofar as whatever's left of his skills are concerned. He did not look terribly out. He did not look like some pathetic version of himself. He looked like maybe, you know, not prime Rampage standing, but not terribly depreciated. But on the ground, you know, he's just sort of laying on his back. And there was a moment there where he had, like, wide open half guard. And Chael didn't even need to go through it. Because if you go and move to Mount, maybe he bucks and rolls and it gets a little more hard to control a guy like that size. But, you know, just lay in half guard. You can control him with the hook of your own. And Rampage is not really going to try and sneak an underhook. Rampage will go for the stand-up. Like, he'll sneak the underhook and then try to stand. But only after he's given up two or three minutes on the ground. Right? So at that point, like, who really cares? And he did, in fact, get up and, and do that. But I thought Sonnen did what Sonnen does. In fact, he was even going for some of the same submissions where he goes from uh, half guard to crossbody threatening the Kimura. Uh, didn't get it, of course, but it was just a very workmanlike performance from Chael Sonnen. I don't really know who he's going to be fighting next because this is the first fight, obviously, in the, in the heavyweight tourney, and, and I guess we'll see, but um, it was it's not a whole lot to say. It was a very... You know, punch your ticket, blue-collar blue kind of performance from Chael Sonnen that um, leads you to believe he might be doing better in this tournament than I thought he otherwise would. Um, not that I necessarily expected Quinton Jackson to win, but I kind of thought it'd be... A, I, I, I just... Here's my thought. I basically thought Chael would struggle more to get the takedown than he did. And then it turns out once it came, once... Like, once he was able to get the first takedown, the rest of them kind of came without a whole lot of issue. And then once he was on top, Rampage just doesn't really do a whole lot about it. So, it's just hard to say. It's hard to say a whole lot about Quentin at this point. Uh, I don't think he's done. Uh, but not a strong showing. Not a terribly weak showing, I guess. But a decent enough showing by Chael. Chael just had the better game plan. Come in natural weight. Stick to your strengths. Don't rush what you the conditions you need to establish. Let the fight sink in. Get a sense of this guy's timing. Get a sense of this guy's strength. And then go from there. And he did. And then from there you can see he's got all the same setups. He loves that half guard on top. He likes to be and he likes it the same side. He likes it on their right side. So he's got his right leg entangled. And then he leans cross body with his own left. Where he's grabbing his right hand to their 
left hand, and then he wants to get cross body like this. It's the same. It's the exact same setup every time for him. So he just he. You can say whatever else you want about Chelsea, and he is primarily good about sticking to his strengths. The second Anderson Silva fight, notwithstanding. Okay, here is the big one. Rory McDonald defeating Douglas Lima, 48-47, 49-45, 49-46. Those are interesting scorecards. Rory McDonald is your new Bellator welterweight champion, and he is the deserving winner here. I thought heading into the fifth, there were basically two scorecards you could have had. You could have had 3-1 to one heading into the fifth, or you could have had 2-2 two to two heading into the fifth. I think it was like that second round was a little bit hard to tell exactly what had happened, but but nevertheless... It was it was very competitive. You didn't necessarily, even if you thought it was third to one, I don't know. I didn't I didn't think heading into the fifth. I was like, well, I don't know. Lima's got to get a stoppage, or this whole thing's going to come undone. I didn't get a sense about that at all. Um, okay, so how did he get it done? I got to tell you, at first he looked amazing. He got right in Douglas Lima's face, backed him up with the jab, had him very very close to the fence. Uh, was threatening takedowns even when he couldn't get them. Just really, really controlling at what distance the fight took place and controlling who was first. He was constantly first. He was constantly the guy getting after it, right? Like, And you had this sense of Douglas Lima. Like, well, he, Douglas Lima has this bit where he's like, I'll take what they give me. It's sort of like very jiu-jitsu mindset. And I don't... In jiu-jitsu, that can be fine depending on what you're trying to do. In MMA, I don't know that I agree that that's the best mindset to go with. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not because he lost that first round no problem, right? No problem at all. So the one is this sort of natural defensive posture that, and I don't mean like posture, I mean like this this attitude, this posture in that sense that Douglas Lima took. I don't think it did him any favors early. However, what you began to notice was the difference was that Rory had a really good jab and a really good sense of like commanding the space. But once Douglas Lima was able to introduce some problems to that, namely that calf kick, and especially got going in the second and the third rounds, I think he dropped him in the third round with it, as a matter of fact. Um, that's when everything changed. And you saw this giant swelling on the leg of Rory McDonald. Here's what we can say. Douglas Lima could have fought better than he did. There's more he could have done, and I'll finish explaining why in just a minute. For Rory McDonald to look that good early, and then for Douglas Lima to turn the tide, and turn the tide by not figuring out a way to control him against the fence, not figuring him out by, or figuring the fight out by, like, getting him on the ground. He turned the tide through damage. It is still pretty clear to me that Rory McDonald, that time off that he took, was smart. Um, at 26, 27 years old, he still has an absolutely clear upside, no doubt about it. However, the damage is really beginning to wear on him. Really beginning to wear on him. He is just a guy who takes a lot of punishment. And, and not because he's defensively irresponsible, just because his body, I don't think, responds to it all that well. You, know, you just hit Fedor one time and he's just bleeding. It's kind of like that in a way. It looked to me like Rory had a broken nose. Rory, after the fight, called him the best fighter he ever fought. And he took a beating to get that win. But here's what you can also say about Rory McDonald. The mental wherewithal to be, after that fourth round, looking not great. And that leg was fucked up. 
And to come back and put it on Douglas Lehman the way he did, make no bones about it, fight for the takedown, get it, and control him on top is super, super admirable. Like, Rory McDonald is a fighter. And this is not news to anybody, but if there was anybody who was doubting it, if there was anybody who was questioning it, if there was anybody who had any kind of feeling like, eh, this might be over for him. And it looked it looked dicey there for a, for a few minutes, to be quite honest. He had a gut check moment and answered it, no problem. Uh, very, very impressive display of character from Rory McDonald tonight. I don't know how you don't take your hat off to a guy like that. You have to be a little frustrated with Douglas Lima because, one, yes, as much credit as we want to give Rory for implementing his game plan, it's like, it's like Douglas, you got to be able to start fights a little bit more proactive than this. The other Achilles heel for Douglas Lima is this notion of his that he thinks he can just ride out fights in full guard. He does it a lot sometimes, or, or, or rounds anyway, or at least moments in fights where he's just quite comfortable in full guard. It's very hard to pass Douglas Lima's guard. And I remember there was one moment where he had Rory tried to shoot. He, like, shucked him off. He was still issuing, uh, having an issue with the leg. And then as Rory tried to step this way and post this way, right, as turning into space, Lima was there, and then Lima used that to then take Mount, right? So he had, he had his own issues, but, um, but when but in the, let's say the fifth round, for example, because this happened in many rounds, but let's say the fifth round, you have McDonald finally gets the takedown. McDonald's not good about that double and the double and pushing into the fence. He's the, he's the guy who like gets behind you from the wizard and trips and then or drags you down, and then he gets down there and you know it's just Tito Ortiz, Ken Shamrock, or something where it's just full guard, you know, and the full guard is good because now I've got, you know, but I've got you behind the hips and, and I can, I can control a bicep. I can, can have a collar tie. I can do things with it, but it's not super awesome for, uh, um, dealing with a guy that good on top. It's good to prevent him from doing like really super vicious things, I suppose, but not much more. And it definitely ain't good for winning rounds. And so it's like, it's like Douglas Lima, man, he's just he's frustrating because he's so talented. He's such a nice guy. He could have fought better uh, in terms of, like, choices that he made. But in the end, you know who deserved to win is Roy McDonald because what a, what a warrior. What a, as I mentioned before, what a gut check moment where things were going super bad. He couldn't even stand. He was coming out of the corner when the bell rang for the third and going right for the takedown because he knew if he didn't, he was going to be super fucked. And and in that fifth round, knowing it could have been either for either fighters, like it, they always ask these questions, like who wants it more, and they always seem like you know these totally ham-fisted bullshit Hallmark card uh, things that like yelly coaches say to people just to I don't know keep up the religion of sport or something. They don't they, like it feels like they don't mean anything. Who wants it more? Fuck off! Everybody wants it. But then you get to moments like that, and it's like, I'm sure Douglas Lima wanted it, but Rory McDonald looked like he was a starving person fighting for food. And you have to take your hat off to that guy like that. That, that must have been incredibly difficult. And he did it. Wow. Very impressive. Michael Chandler defeating Goichi Yamauchi. 30-26, 30-26, 30-25. That seems a little bit generous to me because heading into the third round, it wasn't clear to me exactly who was winning. You had Chandler for sure winning the first. He got kicked in the face in the second, and he was he was able to get the takedown essentially in all three rounds. 
And in the first two rounds, it just wasn't a lot of ground and pound. It was in the third round where the ground and pound really began to just rain down the the hammer of Thor. Um, and so I can see that if you gave the first round to him, no problem. I could see giving the second round to him as well. And of course, by the third round, forget it. You know, he, he had won that, no problem. But um, it, it, that 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 scorecard doesn't quite it doesn't quite you know paint the picture that. Chandler looked good in this fight. Don't get me wrong. He definitely looked good. Again, was able to get the takedown when he needed it. And that third round, he was giving Yamauchi the business. But the first two rounds, he would get on top. And again, it was like, it was the same thing. It's like trying to control Yamauchi, pressing him into the fence. Yamauchi kept trying to frame at an angle, right? I can't really armbar you straight up. To get an armbar, I have to get underneath at an angle, right? That's what you have to do. You have to turn at an angle. Everyone will teach you an armbar from Jiu-Jitsu. I can see with my eyes closed. I reach over, I grab the arm. Right, uh, and of course I pulled you in tight at this point. I reach over, grab the arm, I pick it up, I push it to the side of me. I take my foot and the hip on the same side, and I turn. My other foot comes up close to the back of your arm. It pinches down. I then use that to step into your hip. I bring the other leg around behind the, the head of yours. I crunch down with my hamstrings. I come up with the arm, and I've got your arm hooked here, and then I go. Right, that's how it's done. I pinch the knees together too. Right, that's how an arm bar is done. But to do that, I have to create a frame. Right, or I have to excuse me, I have to create an angle. And he kept trying to create an angle. And there were times where Chandler could not follow him because he would create an angle such that you would have to move into the fence. And, of course, you can't, right? The, the fence is there. You just move into it and you stop. You can't follow all the way around. And so he was able to avoid the submissions. But uh, not, not Michael Chandler's strongest performance, despite what the, the scorecards say, but good enough, I guess, in the end to get the win. And good enough, you know, to maybe set up some of these bigger fights that he's been looking for. Certainly not a step backwards. And also, it should be noted that Goichi Yamaguchi is a very talented guy. And not a lot of people know that. Uh, Aaron Pico defeating Shane Crutchin. Oof. 37 seconds of the first round. Hit him with a body shot. Dropped him. Guy gets up again. And then off of the clinch, they break. And then he just digs one to the body. Look, Aaron Pico is obviously oozing with talent. Let's be very clear about this. What a sick win. And by the way, Bellator deserves... Uh, some credit because they always mic their cages better than the UFC. I don't know how they do that, but they do. And you could hear that left kaboom right up the gut, right? Pretty impressive. But the one thing that kind of bothered me a little bit was um, he had that lower stance again, that sort of wrestling, like left, not, not left. The guys like Bermudez, by the way, who could, they're not, not, I'm not saying Pico won't end up being better than him. I'm just saying for now, Bermudez is more of a senior fighter. And he can kind of keep an upright stance, and then he can level change and then go back to it. Pico has kind of like this low stance. And that low stance was partly why he got uppercutted against Zach Freeman. So I didn't like that. And, you know, these big, windy punches, that, that's fine for this level of competition. But it's good things are going to have to be tightened up going forward. The only thing I'll say in defense of Aaron Pico, aside from the fact that he's obviously incredibly talented, is people are like, well, he's fighting bums. He's out there fighting guys who aren't very good. That's exactly who he's supposed to be fighting. He's not supposed to be fighting super good guys. If you're one and one, you're two fights into your pro career, I don't give a shit if you are St. Pierre or whoever. You need to be fighting guys at this level of the game's maturity. You need to be fighting guys who are, who are not very good. It takes time to build up. It takes time to put together all the pieces of your game. Even if you're as talented as Francis Ngannou, even if you're as talented as Aaron Pico, it just takes time to build up the requisite skill sets. And you know, throwing somebody who's brand new and someone who's like you know, 
Zach Freeman, what was it, 9-3 and three when they fought? You saw what happened. You get uppercut and you get guillotined. It doesn't do you any good. It takes time to get that. If somebody is new in their MMA career, they should be fighting other people who are not good. That's exactly how it's supposed to be done. In fact, the mistake they made was trying to put him up against somebody who was that good and that senior in his first fight. And you saw what happened. It backfired. People complain that he's, fight, he's fighting people who aren't necessarily all that great are very confused. Now they are matchmaking him correctly. They mismatched him early in his first fight at Bellator NYC. And then Henry Corrales defeating Georgie Karahani in 30-27, 229-28. Best performance I've ever seen from Henry Corrales by a country mile. Um, he just had a good game plan. Uh, Georgie Karahani has a fantastic guillotine series. He shut all that down. He did just a really good job of... He just seemed to know exactly all the chain sequences. And uh, and Karakhanian does like a lot of like oh I'm gonna I'm going to um, I'm gonna try and go for a takedown oh that doesn't work I'm gonna sit to deep half oh that doesn't work and now I'm gonna sit to full and then from full I'm gonna try an armbar he's got all these sequences Corrales seemed to know exactly what they were all going to be he looked like he was just really ready for that guy on that day um, and Corrales has had some tough fights at featherweight he's a very very talented guy you know, I think he had a tough fight against Daniel Strauss I think he even fought Pitbull as well. Uh, and he's had a, you know, it wasn't like the most dynamic early run, but I think he's finally coming into his own, and, and Georgia Karakhanian is a very good fighter, so for Corrales to get that kind of a win in a pretty clear way, in my judgment, um, I think says a lot. By the way, Joey Davis over Ian Butler. Joey Davis, one of the most decorated wrestlers in NCAA. What was he Division Two like, undefeated? I forget exactly what it was. Yeah, Division Two undefeated, 133-0. and 0. He never lost a match in Division Two college wrestling. 24 years old. He beats Ian Butler with a spinning back kick to the liver. Keep your eye on that boy, Joey Davis. Woo. Very, very, very interesting. And 39 seconds in, by the way. Even better. Uh, all right, so if you have a question for me, shoot it over at L. Thomas News on Twitter. By the way, as always, subscribe to the channel. Like the video. I always appreciate that when you do. I'm going to have a sip of my drink. Y'all been asking me to update some things, make things better. I got a, such a long way to go. But here I am using a different program. Hope you guys appreciate that. I got a little few graphics in there, you know. Trying try to try improve things up a little around here, a bit around here. My, my ear is red. Look at that. Well, that's all about. But I um, hope you guys appreciate some of so, These are very modest improvements. I have many more to go. But hey, baby steps, right? And, and it should look pretty good, too. Mmm. Breakfast of Champions. Right, let's see what you guys have to say on Twitter. All right, let's see. Do you think tonight's UFC pay-per-view card is a sign of things to come? Top-heavy main co-main events and three mediocre fights. Also, what's your thoughts on a pay-per-view price increase? Yeah, that wasn't a lot of fun, was it? The pay-per-view being a lot more expensive. First of all, I don't, I don't. Um, I think they're realizing if we put a modest increase on the prices of pay-per-view, that will help offset some of the fact that the overall average number of sales are down, right? Like the per event basis uh, in terms of sales is, the, is, is quite down. So if we just modestly increase by $5 each time, we can make up for some of that, right? Remember they were like sort of touting that this was the greatest year in company history? Yes, please. Nobody believes that. Even It's an accounting trick maybe, but it's not a real demonstration of uh, uh, enthusiasm behind the product. So... Part of the evidence of that is that you're seeing this increase in pay-per-view to offset some of that lack of enthusiasm. Stipe's post-fight interview. Blah, 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 I'm having a baby. He was hard to understand. In fairness to him, 
He'd also just fought Francis Ngannou in four or five rounds. So I'm going to cut him a little bit of slack. Let's see. Do you think Stipe will take another long break due to the UFC not paying him what he wants? I don't know. What did you think of Stipe snatching the belt from Dana's hands and having his own coach put it on around him? Awesome. Good for him. Champion should have whoever he wants put it on him. I have no issue with that whatsoever. People asking what's next for the champ, but what would you like to see next for Francis? And how soon? That was a long fight. He should take some time off. Six months or so. Maybe come back around. Let's see. It's January. Maybe come back for International Fight Week. And against, I don't know, a top 10, top 5 heavyweight. Something like that, right? Because he's going to be, in six months, he's going to be a lot better now than he is than he was today. Um, so, yeah. Take some time off. Make some cash, right? Like he did. Chill, go on vacation, and then get back. What he needs is time to work on his craft. Give him the space that he needs to bring his game to bear. And I think if you do that, we'll be rewarded in the end. Uh, let's see. Given the muscle mass he has, how much improvement do you think Francis can make in his cardio? That's going to be a big question. I think part of it was an issue of resource management today. Like, he didn't really manage the fight in terms of what he had to give that well. Uh, the other part is, could he train more effectively? Could he have, could he diet more effectively? We're going to have to see. I know some folks are like, oh my god, I have all these questions about his cardio. I have questions too, but I don't have declarations. There are still some unresolved issues about this. Let's see what happens. Um, someone says, have the drink, man. You deserve it. Thank you, buddy. I may have already repeated that. I don't even know. Anything to make of DC not mentioning Rockhold as a potential title holder? That caught my attention, too. I don't know. Because everything they've said before this has been, like, everyone's copacetic. But that was weird. Right? Maybe it was, maybe it was an innocent oversight. I don't know. But it was weird. Kind of silly to think a loss to the champion derails the future of such a dynamic fighter. I think talking about Francis Ngannou. I would agree. I would agree completely. What are the two things the UFC needs to do in 2018 to improve things overall, to make things better than 2017? What would you do? I think, one, make the cards smaller. Um, two, go to cities that better represent. I mean, Boston showed up tonight, and they, the wooing was not that bad in Boston, so I'll give, I'll give some praise to Boston, but I still think there's a better case to be made about geographically um, tying um, headliners to that space, which I don't think they've done. Stephen Miocic, I am the greatest heavyweight of all time. You know what, man? I'm not going to argue too much with him. I'll let him have that tonight. Francis Ngannou say he learned a lot tonight. Very interesting. Interesting. Let's go through more of these questions if we can. Decisive loss, but I think Ngannou learned that he needs to work on his cardio and wrestling to be a champ. And not even be great at them. He just has to maintain the threat for three rounds instead of one. I mean, that's something to be said for that, sure. Do you think the scorecards were lenient on Nganu? I thought there could have been a 2 or 3, 10-8 rounds in there. I have to go back and watch, but I don't know. 50-44 across the board feels pretty dominant to me. Is the blueprint out on how to beat Nganu now? Will he be able to get enough takedown defense with his to be competitive at this stage in his career? It's a great question. This is the juncture where Nganu has to go back and he has to say to himself, what am I going to do to make sure this never happens again? Am I really going to put in the work necessary? And do I really have the physical tools to make that happen? Um, if he doesn't really work on these weaknesses, if he decides that these are the things he can live with and just work around, 
then he's sunk. But if he keeps doing what he's been doing to this point, I think there's at least some room for optimism. It's a good question, though. Boy, did Bellator mess that one up by swapping the main and co-main. Then it was followed by the same old tired Chael promo. But Big John was pretty good on commentary. I thought Big John was pretty good on commentary. But he was still getting a little bit... Um, look, he was finding his bearings. He was obviously quite competent. There wasn't a lot of situations this time where he was able to bring his referee expertise to bear. And in fact, it was in the UFC where there was one of those issues and it was just painfully clear to me, if they're not going to bring someone in the booth who has his expertise as like a fixed member, they need to have someone on UFC broadcast bring in people who are like, hey, let's go to so-and-so who can explain to us what's happening here. And as much as I love Mark Ratner, he's not that guy. They still haven't done that yet. But as for Big John, um, you know, I think it wasn't like, like, it wasn't like to be like Paul Felder necessarily, but uh, he did an admirable job, I think, for the first time with Bellator. And um, I think when they have another fighter in the booth, it'll benefit even more. By the way, Jimmy Smith was great on Fox Sports 1. Did you guys see him? He did a really good job. If Francis don't rush in the first round and walk Stipe down picking his shots, is Francis the new champion? No. I just feel like Stipe was too good. Tonight. The only real upset of the night was Sonnen over Rampage. Otherwise, the night went as I expected. Chael might have a heavyweight run in him. Yeah, maybe. Did Miocic lose a chance to score a KO and become a huge star after Francis got tired in the second round? Maybe. But can you really blame a guy for, are we, are we really going to be like, well, you had a chance to be a star. You could have knocked that guy out when, in fact, this guy was, Miocic is probably exhausted, hurt, can't see. I, 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 it's, it's just, you know, why did you hit a home run at the bottom of the ninth? Uh, I mean, I don't know, but it feels like that a little bit. Both Verdum and Kane have been talked about as the next challengers for Stipe, but what about Mark Hunt if he beats Curtis Blades? What are the chances for a rematch for a title shot? Sure, except the first one was not very competitive. I don't know why the second one would be any different, but, you know, if a guy's earned it because he's accumulated enough wins, I, I would never say no. Do you think Kane versus Stipe will ever happen? I hope, man. I hope. That would be so outstanding. It would be so awesome. I really, really hope. I really, really hope. And Ghanu says Miocic was tougher than he thought he would be. Look, man, it's a learning experience, you know? It's good. I'm guessing tonight's UFC pay-per-view card will do well, but what numbers do you expect for UFC 221? That card looks terrible. It's going to be overseas. The main event is sensational, and not much else about it is. It's going to do badly. It's going to do, it's going to do less than 200,000, for sure. For sure. Um, not good. Who doesn't put ice in their mixed drinks? I did put ice. It just melted. Also, it's it's Jim Beam. It's terrible liquor. Like, what am I trying to preserve here? You know what I mean? Like, typically with ice and a mixed drink, there is some sort of reason that you want to be able to add coolness to it to make it smooth. Jim Beam is dog shit. Like, I'm drinking dog shit. I know that. It's rock gut. You can make that in your tub. I, I don't need a whole lot of ice, bro. We think about Stipe versus Lesnar. Stipe beats the fucking brakes off Brock Lesnar. Come on, y'all. 
Stipe is right now the best heavyweight in the world, period. Whether he can maintain that for another year or two, anybody's guess. But right now, ain't a person alive in that division that's going to beat him. Not Cain Velasquez, not nobody. Now, if Cain Velasquez can rehabilitate and get to another point, that'll be different. But today, that is your guy. Don't, don't take that away from him. What he did today was super impressive, and it needs to be acknowledged as such. Someone says he's indecipherable. I know. Part of the reason why I hesitate having him on is not merely because he has, like, one-word answers, but sometimes I legitimately struggle to understand him. Uh, Nganu needs a proper head coach. His corner wasn't giving him any legit advice, and they weren't putting ice on his back. What the fuck was up with that? Ooh. It's a good question. I'll have to go back and look. Uh, Dave Doyle on Twitter says, Francis Nganu is handling the post-fight press conference with honesty, grace, and dignity. Don't write this guy off. I'm not prepared to. These guys, early in the game, they run into buzz saws. It's the, we'll see how he handles this moment. We'll see what he looks like after the fact. But for now, I feel like there's a lot to, uh, to enjoy. All right. I have probably kept you too long. I appreciate everyone tuning in. I did it a little bit different. Normally, I use the Google groups or the whatever. And today, I did it a little bit differently. I used, the, um, I used my encoding software this time. So, let me just say this. Thank you to everyone who watched. One more time. Ready? Remember to subscribe. It's a big deal for me. Like the video. If you have any questions, shoot me an email. Uh, L, uh, News at gmail.com. I'd be happy to answer it. Anything you got, whatever's on your mind, shoot me an email. And, uh, yeah, man. Thank you guys so much for watching me. I hope this was uh, fun, uh, as fun for you as it is for me. Y'all, I got so many changes coming to this place. And this year, you have no idea. It's going to look radically different. The quality is going to be radically different. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be so fun. I am I am so excited about this year. And I'm so excited about tonight's fights. Even if they went a little conventionally as we thought they might. Um, you know, nevertheless, it's been really fun. So thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. It is 2.17 in the morning. So here's my one last thing I'll say.